episode 209. Primary care is an investment. The rest of healthcare is a payment. Today, I speak with Dr. Jed Constance, a healthcare strategist in primary care finance and delivery. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Recent studies have come out suggesting that millennials are foregoing primary care and just heading directly to specialists. I contend that the reason for this might be the state of primary care at this juncture. Time is a precious commodity. Why bother with an inconvenient doctor appointment that isn't perceived to be worth the time invested? It's frequently the case that FFS-compensated PCPs are being directed or incented to do things incongruent, perhaps, with their primary charge to direct and quarterback care, to spend time to listen, to advise, to prevent. As has been said many times on this podcast, transformation requires a change in economic models. Today, I speak with Dr. Jed Constance, an expert in how to go about transforming primary care. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Jed. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. Why don't we, by way of maybe providing a little bit of context and background, start out our conversation today talking about PCMHs, otherwise known as patient-centered medical homes. So we're about 15 years out, let's just say, from the launch of the whole PCMH idea. What would you say might have been missing from the PCMH conversation, which may or may not have led to its success. I'm not sure how we'd quantify the success of PCMHs, actually. It's been a little lackluster, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, or, or it's limited success because we've accomplished a great deal in defining what true patient-centered care looks like and what primary care service delivery should look like in support of uh, individual patients. But what we failed to address back when this conversation started and what continues to be an issue today is the way primary care gets paid. So we understand, or are beginning to understand, I should say, that maybe fee-for-service medicine, payment for primary care service on a fee basis, doesn't necessarily allow primary care to align its services with the needs of the covered individual or the patient. What it instead seems to perpetuate is this effort to provide care that gets paid, as I said a minute ago, rather than care that's more carefully aligned with the needs of the patient. And to a degree, it's sort of held back advanced primary care models that would emerge from this patient-centered medical home model, where primary care physicians and their practice teams are genuinely able to meet a much broader range of service needs on behalf of uh, patients. In other words, a primary care physician, if they are being compensated with an FFS backbone, despite the fact that there might be some quality incentives or whatnot built into the PCMH model, because that FFS backbone still exists, they have to play by the rules of FFS, if you will, and they've got you know limited time to listen and they're not necessarily going to spend time in their office thinking about some care gap or is that what you're referring to? 
That's exactly what I'm referring to, because the fee-for-service system is uh, driven by a set of correct coding guidelines. For example, the practice gets paid nothing unless the physician is face-to-face with a patient or unless a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant is face-to-face with a patient. Often, it's not that type of team member that needs to be face-to-face with a patient. Maybe it's a nurse educator. Maybe it's simply a health educator. Maybe it's a nutritionist or possibly a social worker who is attempting to address a much broader range of service needs. But because we continue to use the fee-for-service system, the practice doesn't have the opportunity to really put the correct person in front of the patient or with the patient. So some sort of calculation that compensates the practice for caring for a patient in the broadest sense possible appears to be of greater value than a bonus system or some sort of enhanced fee-for-service system. Which is what you would classify the existing PCMH models or the historic, let's just say, PCMH models. They're kind of like FFS+. plus. Yeah, that's correct. And, and while there's been some experimentation around, for example, a care management fee, care management stipend, the question remains whether or not that stipend or that fee is generous enough, frankly, in order for the practice to realign resources and services to better support the needs of the patient. And you're talking about the chronic care management dollars? Yes, absolutely. And often it's limited, for example, to chronic condition management activities rather than a broader range of services that are focused on stress, diet, exercise, and sleep issues, for example. So has anybody been working on reforming the payment model? Yeah. And actually, the employer community accidentally worked on the payment reform issue when they started to secure the services of on-site near-site clinic companies in order to make healthcare or primary care, I should say, more convenient for the covered individual. Many of those business agreements between employers and these sources of primary care were based upon either cost plus or some sort of per patient per month type of compensation. Again, not on a fee-for-service basis where the source of primary care is able to receive compensation based upon the improved alignment of care in terms of patient needs. In addition to that, the Family Medicine for America's Health has been working on the comprehensive payment calculator, which is a an approach of saying if we were to take primary care services and based upon the overhead expense for primary care, convert those services into a per month payment amount, what would that look like? And then finally, and most recently, we've seen real progress coming from the National Alliance of Healthcare Purchaser Coalitions, who recently during their annual meeting considered a payment in advance of care strategy that is uh, designed to allow uh, self-funded employers, for example, to purchase primary care where they are spending the same or less money more intelligently by organizing it around the needs of populations. How exactly did employers accidentally stumble upon this model when talking about on-site clinics? Why wouldn't the on-site clinic just be FFS like everything else? Services are more efficient or can be more efficient if cash flow considerations are taken into the formula. So if you can reduce what's referred to as the revenue cycle management cost of delivering health care, if you can make the payment 
for healthcare a little bit more certain and guaranteed, then you can remove some of the overhead expense associated with collecting for a service. And again, the other idea was simply to what would it take to buy primary care at a lower rate than it would cost in the open market on a fee-for-service basis. Now, I'll also get back to the problem with some of the original thinking there, because what employers ended up buying was what I affectionately refer to as cheaper care, not more (laughs) effective care. And so that's what the National Alliance understands. And what you mean by that is the price per unit was smaller, but that didn't necessarily mean that somebody was actually getting the care that they may have required to prevent higher costs later on. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's what what they thought they were trying to do was buy primary. Well, first of all, make primary care more accessible. And secondly, what they were trying to do was simply buy primary care cheaper than what it was available in the market. So they realized that using payment models other than fee-for-service was helpful in that regard. But again, they missed the bigger picture of purchasing primary care that genuinely was better aligned with the needs of the patient and primary care that was more effective in cannibalizing downstream spending by uh, actually preventing the need for a patient to seek specialty care uh, or even worse, facility-based care. So nobody had figured out at that juncture that if you have really good PCPs, overall spend can go down and overall quality can go up. Like that wasn't... Okay. That was, yes, you're absolutely correct. That was not part of the conversation back then. Is there an acronym for the National Alliance of Healthcare Purchasing Coalitions? I, I don't didn't think I ever would be striving for an acronym, but that's a mouthful. They just refer to themselves in the shorthand using National Alliance. Uh-huh. They, just, okay. they just say National Alliance. Their initials don't roll off your tongue, so it's not. <laughs> I was just thinking that, which is why I inquired. <laughs> no, no, they just call themselves the National Alliance. All right. So the National Alliance. Mm-hmm. What, after looking at the data and going through this history with the PCMHs, what's now their guidance to buy? Like, what's the payment model that is being recommended? It's a payment in advance of care calculation based upon historical claims data. So the National Alliance recommends for its coalitions that they guide their employer members through a process of taking a look at multiple years, typically three years of historical claims. And from that, not look at the historical spend for primary care, but calculate the future value of primary care. To that extent, they suggest that their employer members consider buying from primary care based upon five buckets of service. Preventive care, absolutely. Wellness services, disease management services, and care management, care coordination services, as well as obviously sick care or acute care. Because right now, what the National Alliance recognizes is that many of their employer members are currently buying standalone or siloed wellness programs, disease management programs, and care management, care coordination programs. What they're suggesting is through this advanced primary care concept beyond patient-centered medical home concept, is that maybe they can buy those services in a highly coordinated and consolidated manner through primary care and thereby create a better environment for accountability and a more coordinated environment for service delivery. 
You had mentioned the idea of calculating the future value of primary care and then basing the program, I suppose, that would be put together on how much downstream costs would be offset. Is that the idea? That's really the idea. By really taking a look at claims data in the context of the documented needs of the covered population, you can take a look at how money has been spent historically, and you can predict with some level of certainty that if you bought certain services from primary care, you could legitimately preempt, prevent the downstream spend that occurs You sound very certain about that. Was there some kind of data analytics that went on that showed, you know, like, here's our control group and they are, you know, either medically homeless or they're going to a PCP, but, you know, like nobody knows what's going on there versus a cohort of patients, say, that was being treated within the advanced PCP model. And you can compare those costs. Yeah, you can. And really, it's because this advanced primary care model is often presented in an opt-in way where covered individuals are given the opportunity to opt into the program or stay right where they are. There are several instances where we have uh, control group information as well as those who've opted in. Then using a number of different predictive modeling tools that are out there that help to identify what's often referred to as low-value care or healthcare waste you can begin to see that in this advanced primary care environment, these primary care physicians and their care teams are genuinely able to organize care and arrange for care that is more closely aligned with the documented needs of the population. The beauty of this is it is an opportunity to measure the performance of advanced primary care down to the individual physician level and the services that that physician or his or her care team is is either providing for or arranging for. And this is one of those instances where not only does the cost go down, but the quality goes up at the same time. Absolutely, because when your care delivery is better aligned with the needs of the covered individual, you are genuinely addressing their chronic condition needs, and you are genuinely improving their health status using whatever sort of measurement tool makes the most sense. And that's the other reason why payment reform is so important, because the history of fee-for-service has driven a keep-em-sick, keep-em-coming healthcare economy. And so by changing the payment model of PCPs and then putting the PCPs into the position of being the gateway into the more expensive care venues, it kind of limits the flow of patients that shouldn't be in those expensive care venues. Absolutely. We prefer to think of it as navigate patients rather than gateway for patients. And going back to your five buckets, you had said that they're preventative wellness, disease management, care management slash coordination of care, and then sick care uh, slash acute care. So those first two, the preventative and wellness, there's been just a ton of conversation around the idea that both of those two, perhaps more on the wellness, maybe, arguably, than the preventative care rarely reduce cost. What they do, they can do, is increase happiness and satisfaction amongst an employee population. But the guidance has has been that if an employer wants to reduce costs, those are not necessarily the things to be looking at. Are you in concordance with that? Uh, No, I respectfully disagree with that. Because when you say preventive care, there is a gap in understanding as to what true preventive care is. 
True preventive care is not a physical exam. It's not an annual physical exam. True preventive care is more of a conversation than it is an examination. The outcome for true preventive care should be developing a better healthcare consumer, a better patient who understands their current health status and is now absolutely in line with and supportive of efforts to improve that health status. Wellness programming tends to talk about lifestyle issues that need to change for uh, patients' needs to naturally decline as they become greater stewards of their own health status in general. And the slam against wellness services has often been a byproduct of the way they've been delivered. They've often been delivered in a siloed fashion, independent of primary care, external to primary care, largely as a broad-based educational campaign, not terribly aligned with the individual needs of the patient. The kind of wellness service that we're talking about is a service that is part and parcel to a clinical care plan authored by the primary care physician and his or her team in complete alignment with that clinical care plan. Now, admittedly, in terms of both prevention and wellness, those are efforts that may take a while to yield results. Once you get into areas of disease management, care management, care coordination, choosing wisely as an example is an important component of that. Because what you want to do under both disease management and what you want to do certainly under care management, care coordination, is ensure that the patient's efforts are focused on high-value service delivery in the most appropriate setting. And And again, that's where you can lower the cost, frankly, in the first year of this kind of an effort. Yeah, it's almost like the terms wellness program and preventative management, they've got such broad definitions that at this juncture, they, it is almost a meaningless terminology. And yes. and it's especially damaging because if you say wellness program, immediately people go, you know, heads go to some of the ones which have been, you know, let's just say proven to be less than <laughs> optimal. No, ab- no, absolutely. The wellness vendor is often an extension of the human resources department or benefits department as opposed to being part and parcel to a primary a bona fide primary care practice. The advanced PCP models that we're talking about here as you have been explaining them, generally speaking, refer to a payment model where the payment is made in advance of the care being delivered. So there is yes. some capitated, you know, rate What are the nuances there? Because you mentioned briefly risk stratification that came up at some juncture earlier in this conversation. You know, there's obviously some patients who you might see them once a year, and then there's other patients that require a whole lot more care. What does good look like relative to calculating what that payment is going to be? And again, I would respectfully disagree with seeing them once a year because part of what has to happen is primary care. And this is often why folks have said, well, millennials are not interested in primary care or they don't see the value in primary care. And it's because the expectation of primary care has not been consistent with the opportunity inside primary care. And so that's why this payment in advance of care calculation exercise is important because it helps to identify what are the deliverables for primary care. And to a large extent, these deliverables should be guaranteed for the entire population. 
this idea that you're going to be able to provide primary care services and a certain percentage will never need the services, that's a misplaced notion. The future value of primary care also is an invitation to redefine what you buy from primary care. And so at a minimum, there should be an annual conversation between a covered individual and their selected primary care physician. But beyond that, once you've identified through some sort of uh, risk assessment based upon historical claims and based upon a questionnaire of some kind, the practice should develop a plan for that patient uh, with a guaranteed set of deliverables that fit those four buckets at a minimum and possibly that fifth bucket for acute care, sick care, where the value of those services can then be calculated and uh, no one believes that someone is taking the money and not delivering a service. So give me an example of deliverables. So say we've got, let's just use our millennial example. So, you know, it's a person, let's just say not quite 30, very healthy. You know, what are the deliverables that would be anticipated for that individual? And then I'll ask you the flip side. And then let's just say you've got somebody with three chronic conditions as the as the counterexample. Sure. Step one is the scheduling uh, for that person of what we've often referred to as an organizing visit. They come in and they meet with members of the care team leading up to that conversation with the physician. So even an asymptomatic person may not necessarily be as asymptomatic as we all think. Uh, they could have underlying stress issues. They could have emerging nutrition issues. They could have a misunderstanding in terms of what sort of level of exercise is best for them as a healthy young person. So the first deliverable is to gather meaningful data about this individual in a way that helps the care team better anticipate their needs and look for the so-called warning signs for someone who is uh, low risk today, but might be high risk tomorrow. These could be, again, stress issues, behavioral health issues. And then there is that conversation. And it sounds like what you're not doing is finger wagging about a BMI. Um, no, you know, not at all. <laughs> so the, or like give them a blood test. You know, so it's, it's not this sort of quest to diagnose or hyperdiagnose or overdiagnose, depending on what camp you're in these days. It's more what are you eating? You know, like things yes. that are not necessarily inherent in the data. Right. And for someone who may appear to have chronic conditions, it's the same sort of organizing visit protocol. But you may need some diagnostic testing in order to support what appears to be emerging from these conversations. It's an organizing visit effort to gather data about the person in order to drive the development of a long-term clinical care plan and long-term wellness care plan that presumes that there is going to be a long-term healing relationship with this primary care physician and his or her care team. And does this have long-term as well as short-term benefits? And I ask this question because one of the things that will always come up whenever you have these conversations is, well, our employee turnover or even our <laughs> plan turnover is like, you know, once every three years. So I don't want to spend all this money up front. And then... Well, you're absolutely right. And that's why this whole conversation, it needs to be tempered with what is the relationship with that person, with that patient. If I want to hang on to my employees for the long term, 
then I definitely want to look at this. Now, if my workforce, I'm looking forward to high levels of turnover, then, you know, turn off the podcast right now, go sit down, because this is not, this is, this is not something that you should be listening to anyway, because your relationship with people is different and, and not part of this conversation. It's also why it's very questionable whether or not this is something that carriers, claims administrators can be involved in because, you know, as you point out, if you're changing carriers every two or three years, it's not the carrier's enlightened self-interest that's fed here, but it, it, it could well be the employer's. And in the case of publicly funded programs, it certainly is in their enlightened self-interest to do this because often folks end up on publicly funded programs for longer terms, especially now with Medicare Advantage plans. They are working very hard to recruit Medicare recipients and, uh, and hang on to those Medicare recipients. So how can an employer be discriminating about which organizations they choose to work with? You know, like at this juncture, there are a number of on-site clinic companies, for example. Like there's a bunch of players that are entering this marketplace. Is there any guidance that you might have how to be selective to get somebody who's really going to deliver the goods? Absolutely. And I like that phrase, deliver the goods, because I think that's that's an important part of the conversation, that if you're going to be involved in the direct purchase of primary care in some form or fashion, you should have a sense of what you're buying. So that was the other effort that the National Alliance engaged in, get their annual meeting, was the adoption of a set of criteria could, that could be used to create a request for proposal document for the objective purchase of primary care. And the criteria fits basically four areas of or four dimensions of primary care performance. Uh, the first and the most important is physician leadership. Regardless of the source of primary care, the question that purchasers of primary care should ask is, where is the physician in this conversation? How committed are they in terms of their own personal and professional reputation in the uh, delivery of high-value, accountable primary care. The second dimension is staffing model. Do they have the right care team, and is that care team carefully aligned in order to address things like behavioral health issues, medication therapy management, nutrition issues? The third area is practice-level technology. Are they using 21st century technology, first of all? And secondly, how well integrated is their technology. There is a, a pretty common understanding that no single source of technology has been developed yet that is comprehensive in all areas of practice operations. So you will often need one for scheduling, another for electronic medical record, another for population health, or for asynchronous communication. However, you want the practice to have a best-in-class and have it properly configured so that it works well together. And then finally, what is the practice's continuous quality improvement commitment to ongoing staff training and development? Under PCMH, we've talked for years about top of license performance among members of the care team. Well, that's great. But for any of us who understand that organizations are more successful if their employees are well-trained and continue to be well-trained, we need to see the same in a primary care environment. We need to see that there is a legitimate and bona fide commitment 
to ongoing staff training and development to ensure that every member of the care team, including the physician, continues to perform at optimal performance. Do you feel like physicians are happier within a model like this? Yes, absolutely. When you have an opportunity to talk to a physician who's been liberated from fee-for-service bondage, they are thrilled because now they know that they have the financial resources they need in order to do exactly what we talked about at the outset, which is the alignment of care based upon the documented needs of their patients. Physicians who are unable to address the needs of patients are not terribly happy and tend to get burned out rather quickly. Physicians, on the other hand, who realize that they're working in an environment where they can genuinely meet the needs of their patients down to the individual patient tend to be a whole lot happier and uh, considerably more productive. And are hospitals challenged by this model? Yeah, because hospitals need to have uh, financial team members, particularly the CFO, who can do the math around not just a payment in advance of care model uh, and how to best use those cash flow considerations, but hospital financial folks have to be able to think, and it's an overused phrase outside the box, but they have to be able to think differently about providing services to their communities so that it's not a matter of how much revenue they generate. It is a matter, however, of how much margin they generate because uh, margin is, is the source of reinvestment in the hospital and the margin paid to hospitals needs to be generous enough so that they don't have to make it from gross revenue. And that relates back to just the calculation of the fee. So they just have a tough time coming up with the fee calculation in a way that doesn't get the CFO or the powers that be to have their hair stand on end because they, if they add up the numbers, the gross isn't as high as it currently is, although the margin might be higher. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. Yeah, because you're going to see as we purge inefficient, ineffective care delivery, as we purge healthcare waste, As we improve the health status of populations, we are going to see a natural reduction in the number of services delivered to folks and the fees associated with those services. But this kind of a strategy, when done well, it gives hospital financial folks an opportunity to take a peek into the future around this predictive modeling piece and begin to imagine what financially the world looks like if we only do 80 of these services rather than 100 of these services? And what do I need to earn for the 80 to make up for the lost margin value of the 20? So, and I'm using obviously incredibly, (laughs) incredibly simple numbers, but it's what healthcare transparency needs to become in order for this to genuinely be successful, is we need to really understand that hospitals are valuable resources for their communities for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is the safety of the community. But we have to also then look at ways so that there's that we we eliminate this natural adversarial relationship between those who pay for care and those who provide care. If someone is interested in learning more, I know you prolifically write, Jed, or if they're interested in contacting you, where can they go to learn more? Well, I, I always, uh, and it's not because I, I get a commission for talking about LinkedIn, but I tend to draw people to my <laughs> my LinkedIn page because it gives them an opportunity to kind of look at some of the stuff I've posted, but it also gives them several options on how best to get a hold of me. 
Dr. Jed Constance. Thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Podcast today. Well, Stacy, I appreciate the opportunity and hopefully the uh, listeners benefited from the conversation. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.